when March hit, we really didn't know what the need was going to be. And we had clients that called us in the third week of March and said, I've just laid off my entire staff. And a month later called us and said, I've rehired all my staff because we're busier than ever. Nobody really knew what to expect. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. This episode is a little long. My apologies for that, but we're going to get to it as quickly as we can. Credits for this episode, all provinces, this will be a life insurance credit, including Alberta. There will be no ANS credits, only life credits in Alberta. It will be good for an IAS credit, a financial planning credit from FP Canada, and a professional responsibility credit from IROC. In this episode, Angela and I will talk about leasing. You'll hear that she's incredibly knowledgeable on the leasing front. And this is the type of center of influence that I think every financial planner who deals with small business owners should have. She's been great. She's been great for for my own business over the years. And she's been a great uh, partner to be able to send people to when they've been in need of help as well. You'll hear that she takes a very financial planning type of approach to things. She talks about educating her clients. She talks about a good value client responsibility. She combines a high level of technical expertise with really understanding how her clients operate. I think this really mirrors what we like to see in good financial planning engagements. color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, let's hear from Angela. Okay, we're joined today by Angela Armstrong. Angela is in the leasing business. And Angela, can you talk a little bit about your business, what it is that you do and how you help your clients? Absolutely. Good morning, Jason. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this with you. It's so nice to see and chat with you. Uh, Prime Capital Group is in the business of helping entrepreneurs grow their businesses while conserving their capital. We know, I mean, our business is a small business like many of our clients. We have a lot of business operational challenges. We have a lot of conflicting priorities for the money that we do have in our own business and and the money that we want to invest. We have to invest in technology and software and team training and upgrades. And this year is an example of how many competing priorities there are getting your team ready to go work remotely 
and uh, maybe dealing with legislative and regulatory changes, maybe dealing with new PPE or health considerations for your team, managing a really changing market uh, and the priorities of you getting in front of your customers that are going to look a lot different, how you interact and connect with your clients. So all those competing priorities mean that the cash that you have available for investment becomes really scarce and really precious. And our business provides capital for the tools for those companies to go and do what they do. So instead of spending their cash to acquire a piece of productivity equipment, a piece of shop equipment, fabrication equipment, food processing equipment, uh, medical uh, piece of equipment for a medical um, facility or a restaurant, whatever it is, technology equipment. We've done a lot of technology financing this year, which makes sense considering the pressures of work from home and and how people needed to respond to that. But the capital required to, to make those investments is competing with all those other operational priorities. So what we do is finance the equipment for those businesses so that they can use it to generate productivity revenue and not deplete their resources or not have to choose between some of those operational priorities and the tools that are going to help drive that productivity. They can, in essence, have their cake and eat it too. And we do that through asset financing. And I think a lot of folks, when like going through financial planning curriculum, we sort of learn about, say, lease versus buy in terms of a car, right? We always, and this is quite a bit different from that, in my opinion, anyways, because here, it's like you say, you're leasing now because you can increase productivity right away. There's a return on investment there. It's not so much a question of how you're buying something. It's a question of if you're saving up, it's a terribly inefficient way to do it. And you're really sacrificing productivity while you're trying to save enough to buy something. So do you feel like it's a no-brainer decision or do people kind of have to be convinced that there's a, a benefit to doing things this way? I think the interesting thing about financing is that whenever you have to make a decision that's a complex decision, and often financial decisions become complex decisions. For example, when you think about buying a home, it's probably one of the most expensive uh, items that you will ever choose to invest in. And yet, often people are not well educated on what that decision matrix should look like. So for example, I have a daughter who's thinking about buying a condo, right? She's got her first full-time job. She's looking at real estate. So we said, okay, we'll do a budget and figure out what your ability to spend on home overhead would be. And she started doing the research and she said, mom, condo fees are really expensive. I didn't factor that in. I thought I could afford the mortgage payments, but now there's all these hundreds of dollars a month of additional service fees I have to pay. I said, yeah, so that's why you have to do budget. And anytime people run across a decision where it's complex and they don't have all the information, the reaction is often to revert to what you do know. So if you know that making a financial investment is possible because interest rates are low, right? So home buyers this year, which seems crazy to me in a a market where there's lots of risk, job risk, employment risk, home buyers are are going crazy. Like the, the home builders can't keep up. Why is that? It's because the spur 
is low interest rates. Everybody thinks, well, a low interest rate means I can afford the home, but are they factoring in all the other costs of home ownership? I think with the asset financing decision, most of the time, the spur is what people know rather than thinking about the entire investment decision. So they'll come to us and say, well, I want to do financing and uh, I can get the money from my bank for X percent. Uh, what's your rate? And that becomes the entire decision. And we say it's a multi-factor decision. And it's no different than my daughter trying to buy a home and saying, well, interest rates are low, mom. I can really afford this mortgage payment. And then realizing, oh, but utilities are expensive and the condo fees are almost as much as what I thought my mortgage payment was going to be. All of a sudden, it becomes a much different decision. So we say that what you think of as a simple decision that you evaluate on one matrix actually is a multi-factor decision. And the leasing decision really depends on what you're using the asset for, what productivity is it bringing? And you spoke of the most important, what's the ROI? So what is this asset going to deliver to you over what period of time? What is it changing in your business? So are there costs that are going to go away when you implement this? For example, a transportation or logistics company that buys new uh, commercial vehicles, uh, tractor trailer units, because they've got really, really high repair costs on an existing piece of equipment and downtime for that unit being in the shop. It's not just the cost of replacing one piece of equipment with another piece of equipment. There's all of the other ancillary costs that go with that. So we really like to sit down with a client saying, what are all the factors in this multi-factor decision so that we can help you evaluate? There may be more than one choice available to you and you can weigh those out against one another. But you have to get to the point where apples are apples, not apples and kumquats where you have the multi-factors like after-tax impacts, which also uh, are part of a leasing decision because a lease is a, a rental uh, payment and, and in, impacts your income statement differently. What looks like a simple decision is actually a complex decision, just like my daughter thinking about her condo. And, and we try to walk people through that conversation and make sure they're considering all of the angles. You talked about home buyers a little bit in there, and you know, right now we have a mortgage rate available in Canada sub one percent. Your leasing clients do they show up expecting those ultra low rates? I, I know it's more complicated than that with leasing, but do you find people are thrown off then when they're not going to get a one or two or three percent rate on a, a business lease? I assume that's not the norm still with leasing. Yeah, it, it's an education, but uh, you know it's funny. I had a sales. Um, a uh, person working for me a few years ago and and was not familiar with the leasing world. And I said, you know, have you financed anything recently? And uh, the person said, yeah, I actually just financed a vehicle. I said, bring in your contract. And uh, we, we sat down and we worked through the math. And, and the person was shocked because the interest rate that was conveyed to them as what the what they were going to be paying was not actually what they ended up paying when you calculated it out. It's because when you do a financial contract on a piece of equipment where there's this kind of long-term productivity value and it's a rental, it's not a purchase, um, some of the costs that are built into the, to the payment 
are not very transparent to the customer. So for example, when you finance a, uh, a mortgage through your bank, or when a business uh, has an operating line in order to purchase equipment. And banks are our friends, right? Every business needs a bank. You need an op- an, a, a way to triage those operating daily operating needs and expenses and purchases and all of those things through the amazing set of tools that the bank can provide you. We, we have several banks that we do business with. They're very important to our business, just like they are to every business. But when you do business with the bank, your cost of borrowing is not limited to the cost of the loan. Your cost of borrowing includes every other amount of money that you pay to the bank. And we pay a lot of money every month in every quarter and every year in fees. This is just part of the lending process. They have a cost of recovery uh, model that for them involves you, your loan as one silo of your overarching umbrella relationship with the bank. So we have operating facilities, we have term loans, we have other kinds of debt with the, with the bank. And on every one of those facilities, we pay fees, periodic fees. Those fees are never factored into the interest cost. But if you added them all up, now you level the playing field. Now you turn your apples into apples instead of you know comparing an apple with a kumquat. So if if the lease is is the kumquat, in order to make to level the playing field between those things, I need to say, well, the lease is all inclusive. When you pay your lease payment, everything you're ever going to pay to us is included in that number. It's it's turnkey. It's simple. It's you can exactly evaluate your costs on that lease and on that productivity piece of equipment based on the payment. Whereas with other kinds of financing, there's acquisition costs, there may be um, capital you have to put into that asset or into that acquisition that won't get covered in the loan. Uh, There could be monthly and other kinds of service fees that you are going to pay to maintain that loan or to maintain under the, the umbrella of that relationship. Whereas what we do is a little bit more tactical. I liken it to a parachute versus an umbrella. A parachute has a specific purpose for a specific need, whereas the bank is your overarching umbrella. It's going to take care of you in all kinds of different weather and storms. It shades you from the sun, keeps the rain off your head, but it needs more maintenance and it it has a different overarching purpose. So just a little bit different conversation and and. A lot of the time that we do to combat this, well, it's a simple decision about the interest rate. Uh, and, and our job is to try to help the business owner explain our their context to us so that we can say, okay, well, here's actually all the things we need to do to give you an equivalency and give you enough information to make a good decision. And it could turn out after that conversation is said and done that the, your bank loan is the best. It's the optimal opportunity for you for this need, but it may not be. And and that's what we spend a lot of time doing is that education conversation. Do you have a, a formalized process for that or tools you provide to your clients to help with that? Or is every scenario just a little bit different? So you really have to just sit down with each prospective client and, and go through it case by case. Some of it is um, tool-based where we can do an analysis. Usually we're working in, in, our relationships are often a triangle. So we're working at one of the apexes of the triangle, at another apex is the, cl- is the client, 
And at the third apex is the equipment seller. So the equipment seller is selling something that the customer needs. The, our ultimate customer, our prospective customer, is trying to solve a business problem by putting a piece of productivity equipment. So it could be, so for example, in April, we financed a, a large um, manufacturing and distribution business that had uh, warehouse distribution centers across Canada. They're a North American wide marketplace for this company. And they were uh, renovating their technology infrastructure across the entire company in order to improve their productivity. They had old uh, hybrid kind of scattershot technology model, and they were going to harmonize everything and give their entire team a fully upgraded, modernized uh, infrastructure to help uh, improve efficiencies and processes in the business. So we sit down with them and say, okay, what's changing in the business? When you implement this technology, we speak to the equipment supplier and say, from your vantage point, what uh, productivity or efficiency is this tool or solution going to give to the end customer? And then we sit with the customer and say, what's going to change in your business? And we can evaluate that. So I would say, while there is a model, every customer is different. A, a manufacturing and distribution business with uh, three or four different locations across North America uh, is going to have a much more complex model than a standalone retail business uh, located in a single town. Uh, that they can say, well, this forklift is replacing the forklift that used to break down all the time, or uh, we're buying some warehouse equipment that's going to help package our equipment, and that's taking out one full-time equivalent person. Now I can redeploy that human talent elsewhere in my business because they don't have to shrink wrap a pallet anymore. We've got a machine to do that. So we're not taking a job away. We're actually repurposing our human uh, resources into better places in our business. And there's a cost conservation, but there's also a productivity boost to the business. So every company's solution looks a little bit different based on the problem that they're solving. A lot of it uh, has to do with having the right conversation. And from our side, having a combination of curiosity about the business and then robust business knowledge about different assets I'll, I'll give you another example. We had a client that called us to purchase a, a particular piece of aesthetics equipment. We know that business, that we know the market, we've financed lots of it. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary in business this year. So we've been doing this for a long time. And we called the client back and said, we just want to let you know if you're you know, persuaded that this is the right product to go with. And we didn't know the supplier. We said, but the price looks wrong to us. And we were able to give them some other places in the market to go and do the research. We're not recommending a supplier. We're not in that business. But we can actually say to a client, we've evaluated this asset. And in our eyes, that asset is overpriced. And so if we were going to finance that asset, here's the limit that we would spend. They actually came back to us. This has been a client we've been doing business with for more than 10 years already. And they were being overcharged by nearly double on this particular asset. So they were able to take a step back from the transaction, reevaluate. They found some other training that they were going to go and engage with to become more educated in this market before they make the actual tactical decision. So in this case, we saved the client quite a significant amount of money. So the, the business conversation about 
what is the context? What's the business problem they're trying to solve? And, uh, and, and then us doing some validation work on their behalf, because all we do is asset financing. We don't do mortgages. We don't do direct loans. The bank is in the business of the overarching generic financing, and they're not going to give that kind of advice, but we can because that's our space. So we're, we're experts in that space and we have a network in that space. So finding that right solution, maybe it's the bank loan, but maybe there are other pieces of advice that we can add into the picture that will help add value. I love these kind of stories. You know, you talk about the esthetician business in there. I never even would have thought about that, but it's so obvious that, you know, you walk in, not, not that I spent a lot of time in uh, beauty salons, but, uh, you know, you walk in and yeah, there is a lot of specialized equipment there and stuff. You can't go to Costco and buy or whatever. So yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Do you have kind of a profile client, a certain client that fits your model? Is it kind of any business that's in a relatively, uh, let's say equipment intensive space? Is it small business, medium business? Where do you draw those, uh, those boundaries? It's a good question. And it's one we wrestle with all the time. Obviously, in every business, you're you're doing um, business with a spectrum. And because we deal, a lot of our referrals come through other market sources, either other financial organizations who have clients that are trying to secure financing, asset financing, or they might be equipment sellers who are trying to help their clients uh, instead of having to spend their precious cash resource to find another way to finance it. And sometimes there are our own clients who are coming back to us or referring other clients to us. Um, we often find that um, the spectrum that we end up doing business with is very wide. But our our target market, I would say, is is fairly well defined as an entrepreneurial business. They may have between you know ten and thousand employees. Uh, they usually have a business owner who's fairly tightly involved in the business. While we do also do business with multinationals and, and uh, you know, every, we say mom and pop to multinational, um, that core business is a business where the business owner is still fairly um, involved in the business. They're involved in the decisions. They might not run the procurement part of their business, but they are involved in sort of the strategic conversation. And that's where we can play a lot of value. We can set up a line of credit for the asset purchases and have conversations about them with them about what is the right financing solution for that specific asset. Because for some assets, that might be a two-year financing term with a specific payment cycle. Uh, it could be a could be a very well established uh, company. We have a client that's a you know, second generation family business. They've been around fifty years, and they were financing equipment. Their business is very cyclical. Their business runs where kind of January to March, very little business, and then it accelerates throughout the year up until you know the fall season, which is their peak season. And so we proposed to them that we build a, a leasing model that actually mirrors their cash flow in their in their year. And they said, can you do that? We said, well, of course. And doesn't that make sense to you that you should pay your lease payments to mirror with the productivity and the revenue that's driven in the business? But nobody had ever proposed that to them before. So that's kind of what we do. So for that business entrepreneur that's saying that really it can benefit from that advice, that very tactical advice that we can give because we know this business and it is all we do. 
were extremely um, narrowly banded in that expertise. For example, I, I really couldn't give you advice about what wealth management decisions to make, even though people call me all the time to ask. I would say, I, I have a wealth management advisor because I don't know how to do that very well myself. I have opinions like everybody, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Um, but in, in asset financing, we have expertise. And so those business owners that have don't have that internal resource where we can actually add some context, some flavor, inform them, um, maybe point them to some of our experiences in the past or give share stories with them about other clients that have been in that case and some decisions that we've seen that have turned out well. Also, some of the cautionary tales, like with this client saying, oh, I saw this at a trade show. It's awesome. And we're like, yeah, it's it's priced too high. And we would encourage you to do a little bit more research. We want to support you and, and help you with this purchase. But we want to make sure that you're investing your money wisely as well. Uh, that those business owners and those in those entrepreneurial kind of contexts is a very good fit for us. And we're, where we've managed to add very significant value to our clients over time. And we build really great long-term relationships. So circling back to this situation where you were able to help a client have a lease schedule that matched their cash flow, that's a great solution. And I would have never even thought of that as possible. Do you have to go to the lender in that case and say, or do you sort of take care of that? Like, is that, do you smooth out that cash flow yourself or do you have to go back to whoever the, the original source lender is and deal with them? How does that mechanically work? That's a, yeah, it's a really great question. We are a direct lender. Uh, so we are not a bank. Our industry has sort of the regulated uh, lenders who are all banks or credit unions and the non-regulated lenders who are sort of private, the private uh, non-regulated side. And that's what we are. We are a private lender to the market, but we um, like all lenders, like all banks, we borrow from securitization markets. So, but once the capital is in our hands, the real limitation for any lender is how good their technology is. So for me to be able to offer this solution to our client, it's because we have very good agile technology combined with really great internal people that can figure out how to bend the technology to serve the clients. Um, and I would say most of the times, if there is rigidity in a client's lending relationship, it's probably more to do with the tools and infrastructure of that of that lender, because it's very difficult to be creative and flexible with your lending solutions if your technology can't do it, because we all use a high degree of automation in our businesses. We happen to have very fluid technology that permits that. And I would say... Most lenders, if you asked them, uh, would give you some sort of a matched solution where maybe you could do a balloon payment once a year. You know, like if you go to your mortgage, how many people have said, oh, I want a mortgage where I can pay a balloon payment once a year and pay down. But how many people actually take advantage of that? Almost nobody does. So it's a perk, but it's a perk that's meaningless if you never if you can never benefit from it. We want to make sure that the solutions we're providing clients in that in that discovery conversation that we have with them. So if a client called me today and say, hey, can you give me a quote? I would not do that because I don't know enough to give you a, a, a proposal. I don't know enough about your business. I don't know enough about the asset. 
that you want to buy or the problem that it's solving? And how can I modulate the solution for you without knowing more about your business? Your business is unique. Uh, it's custom to, to you, to your model, to your team and your tools. So when we're talking to our clients about customizing, we spend a lot of time in the discovery part of that conversation. So to call me and say, hey, can you shoot me off a quote? Well, I could do that, but that that is no different than you calling a retail realtor and say, hey, can you send me a house to buy? <laughs> Nobody would do that. You would never even consider doing that. And yet people do that all the time in financial services. And I, and I think um, it's a disservice for the market to respond that way to, to the customers. The customers deserve the opportunity to learn what their options are and to hopefully make a choice that's better for their business. So this one client, it totally changed their cash flow model in the year because, you know, to go from in their first quarter when they would have zero revenue, almost zero revenue and their equipment's all parked, um, but have to make regular payments in that period meant that they were always having to be so frugal uh, with their cash and and sort of have this, They'd managed to make it work, but we just smoothed out their the needs for them so that they could deal with something like global pandemic this year in a much more agile way because they didn't have the pressures. You imagine when shutdown happened in March, and that's the quarter where they have no revenue, but they also didn't have high overheads from our leases. So for us to be thinking through those things with a client and say, we want to we want to work with you. You can ask that of any lender whether they're able to respond. Uh, will will be a good question for the clients to to work through in their own discovery. I'm curious here, just on this customization and technology side. Then, um, given we're recording this actually New Year's Eve of 2020, when we're still uh, in the midst of this uh, lockdown scenario, we're both in Alberta. I'm wondering about businesses, let's say the restaurant space, this was the classic space that's been hard hit. I'm sure you have plenty of clients in the restaurant space. How have you been able to to deal with that to help out those clients? It's been an interesting year for that. And when March hit, we really didn't know what the need was going to be. And we had clients that called us in the third week of March and said, I've just laid off my entire staff and a month later called us and said, I've rehired all my staff because we're busier than ever. Nobody really knew what to expect. So again, going back to having that sort of resilient technology to be able to um, be a bit nimble with clients' needs this year has been a huge advantage, not only for our team, because when you get a call from somebody that that feels like existential crisis to them, they're shut down, it, they've done nothing wrong they can't get rent relief from their landlord because the mechanisms are not in place or they're not easily accessible. Uh, they don't know there's no wage program in place. And yet the government has dictated that they shut down and go home. And how did they get through those? The lender's ability to sort of defer payments or make other plans available to those clients has been life or death, I think, for, for a lot of businesses. We were really lucky that in our model of financing, we were able to offer clients relief and help them through. And now we're in the second round of doing this. It's been 
interesting and difficult for our team because they they take it very personally. They they're we're we're a very relationship based customer customer based business, and uh, we're in a relationship with a client. It's not buying a can of Coke and when the Coke is drunk, well, to next tomorrow I might buy a Pepsi. We have a relationship with a client for the next three to five years. And every day we're embedded in their business, you know, uh, for good or for bad, for better or for worse. It's, it's a, you know, it's at least a dating relationship, if not a marriage. And you have to be willing to take that phone call and figure, figure out what's going to work for both of you uh, over the long run. I would say the, the hospitality sector has been dramatically uh, hurt. And the improved ability for these businesses to access credit availability programs and rent subsidies is crucial. Uh, they can, they're being rolled out very slowly and it's unfortunate. We know some businesses that, that probably will not survive. You know, at some point, you got to stop putting good money after bad and make a decision to move on. And, and that's heartbreaking to see that where people have put their sweat equity their you know their life's um their life's work maybe is on on the table right now we're trying to help those ones and uh there's not much we can do except try try to sit there across the table from them and say how are we going to get through this together and if you decided that you can't get through it what's next let's let's work uh, the first thing we say to our team is be compassionate listen it's not easy this person on the other side of that phone call may be watching their entire life's work um just disappear and and they haven't done anything wrong to for to cause that so we're we're really day it's a day by day scenario this year it's been uh, that's probably been the hardest thing about being in 2020 and and we hope that uh things will start to by the time this podcast airs things will be looking a little bit more hopeful for for some of these businesses i certainly hope so it's hard to watch this uh devastation in the hospitality industry let's uh, and i know some businesses like you say have thrived through it but that certainly doesn't seem like the default yeah, some have thrived, some are in crisis, and then there's a lot that are just muddling along, which is a testament to, I don't know, just this will to survive, this persistency, this tenacity. It's quite inspiring when you get to you get to see that every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you've been there for us over the years. I think we've used uh, your services five or six, you talk about a long-term relationship, right? And over the last decade or so, 12, 12 or 13 years now, you've been there for us several times. And the very first time that you helped us out, it was the survival of our business that was at stake there. So when you talk about that relationship, that's certainly been key for us. Now, I have a couple other items there that I want to just follow up on. And I, again, I'm not sure how much you can sort of give away here, but you earlier you mentioned the securitization side of your business. Can you chat a little bit about that? Is there anything you can tell us that's useful for understanding the, the sort of leasing business that way? It's interesting. Not all private lenders uh, securitize. Some use their own capital and a little bit of bank capital. And that's certainly how we started out. Uh, it's very difficult to qualify for securitization 
because as you're growing, it's it's a chicken and egg question, Jason. It's it's like everything. If we only had the you know the capital at very attractive rates, well then we could grow. But you can't get the capital at attractive rates until you have enough scale. So how do you accomplish both? It's um, it's a bootstrap equation. And I think I referenced, we're celebrating our 20th year in business this year, 20 years in 2020. It's an interesting milestone for us, certainly a memorable one. I think that um, securitization in in a simple way is changing what the bank does and increasing the scale of that. So if you understand leverage, and especially for people that listen to this podcast who may be involved in financial services, leverage is your ability to take one and turn it into many. And when we borrow money from the bank in our industry, our one could turn into two more. So for every one we put in, the bank might give us two. Now remember, the bank is secured by guarantees and our original capital. And on top of that, they're secured by the contract that we have with our customers. So if we do $100,000 technology financing for a manufacturing business, we've got a contract that is a series of payments that goes for, say, five years at, I don't know, pick pick a number, it's $2,500 a month, say, for five years. I don't even know if that math works. But if that's the number, then really we have a contract. It's a stream of payments, like a mortgage is a stream of payments. And I'm sure you, everyone remembers the liquidity crisis of 2008, 2009, the big meltdown. That was caused by that marketplace where these securitization packages, which are packages of payment streams, they're mortgages, they're other kinds of payment promises, contracts between a customer and a lender. And that contract between that customer and lender then gets sold to a higher lender. Most of those higher lenders in, in our, in I would say most countries that do this kind of financing, certainly North America, securitization is the model by which that financing happens. So securitization is really just the process of promising that contract and a bunch of those contracts called a tranche uh, that could be a million dollars, could be $10 million worth of individual contracts that we would sort of sell the rights of that to a higher lender. And then we can turn our one into many. And the difference between a bank lending where they would have that contract as security and give us two for our one is that we might be able to get 10 for our one through the securitization markets and more competitive capital. So in the last um, few years, as we moved into the securitization market, we had to increase our rigor. We had to do, you know, move where we do audited financial statements. We do monthly reporting on every single contract in our portfolio, which includes loss ratios and delinquency rules and um, full transparency on everything we do. And we must maintain profitability in our business. You know, we can't ever run in the red. So all of these things, which are part of making sure that we are a responsible organization, doing good lending, curating our contracts appropriately, because the underlying money that funds those contracts comes from these institutional market sources 
and they have an expectation that we're going to act exactly like a regulated entity would. So while we're not regulated, which gives us the fluidity that we talked about earlier, being able to be very agile for customers, uh, we still have to behave as a regulated entity in terms of our rigor, in terms of our business practices and processes. So first to qualify and then to maintain the financial relationship, that's the expectation for us. So securitization is... Uh, is, is a challenging place to be in, but it certainly forces you to produce your work in an, in an incredibly careful, prudent way. And it's made us a better business. I can't deny that. It has uh, it really polished us from an uncut <laughs> gem into something a little bit shinier. <laughs> I'm guessing, I mean, there's got to be a, like you talked about the financial relationship, but I'm sure there's a personal relationship that shows up there to some extent. And then I'm sure the technology helps with all of that too, right? That's Yeah, well, you must have technology if you can't do extremely rigorous reporting and extremely granular. So I can, I can slice and dice my portfolio. I know how many asset types I have in any particular market seg segment um, industry, geography, we have to be able to look at our risk across a whole bunch of matrices. And we do that every single month. And if there's <clears throat> changes to the portfolio, quite often, we'll get a phone call from our lender that says, oh, we've noticed a, a change in your buying. Or, uh, you know, two months ago, your portfolio looked like this. And then lately, your buying has changed. To what do you credit that? And we will say, we've been looking at the market and noticing, for example, that the fracking business is under some duress right now in the market. So we've tightened our lending criteria and principles around that. But in order to replace some of the business that we think that that tightening will change, We've uh, we've moved our business origination team focused on this new marketplace or this new asset type. And so we're acquiring business. So we're constantly being judged on our decision making, our strategic initiatives, how and where we um, procure our new business opportunities from, how we fulfill it. And then we manage the contract. So we work you know, from origination to closing with our clients and we manage the contract all the way through. Uh, the underlying financing might come from a capital marketplace, but the relationship that we have with the clients always stays at the local level. So it's a combination, like you said, of managing this in this in this entrepreneurial context where we know and care about what our clients are doing and what their success story looks like. But we in the on the backside of our business, we have to run it with with an extremely prudent eye because we're in that stage, we're actually working for the institutional lender curating their capital. So the balancing act between those things uh, requires phenomenal technology, but then really good people, really good people that can deliver those services and understand the the risk management without taking without turning that into the relationship conversation. No, no business owner wants to be thought of as a risk matrix. Um, they want to be thought of as somebody that's providing jobs and creating um, G GDP in the marketplace and, and, and doing value in their community. So it's uh, the balance of those two things that um, proves uh, an interesting barrier to overcome 
to do well in what we do in our industry. And we're really proud to uh, be where we are. So you've talked about this education side, this relationship side, really having a good know your client process. Would there be scenarios where somebody would come to you and you would say, no, you're better served at one of the banks or you're better served at a credit union or maybe at business development bank? Oh, 100%. Uh, We have had clients this year, for example, I'll think of a customer that came to us that was trying to consolidate financing. The lending that they needed was not uh, to add new productivity equipment. It was to change their overall financial um, sustainability because they went through a six-month period where revenues were significantly constrained. So they were out of covenant with their banks. They needed to work through a refinancing in order to take their debt and restructure the payment model. And it was going to be very complicated for them to do that. They didn't have enough tangible asset value in the equipment that they had on hand. For And, and that's a mechanism that we do often uh, for customers where they say, I've got an, an asset, maybe they bought it at auction and they paid cash for it just because they, they weren't really sure if they were going to end up winning the bid. And then they want it. And now they're saying, I I can't just use my cash for this. I have to finance it. So we'll often engage in what we call a sale leaseback. We purchase the asset from the client and give them their money back. So then they they have that operating capital to do other things in their business, pay rent, keep the lights on, pay payroll, et cetera, taxes. Uh, But if a client has got something that a, a tangible asset, they've got more debt, then we can deal with in the tangible assets. They need a different kind of lending. And there are mezzanine uh, finance companies that will specialize in kind of lending that will finance more intangible types of assets. They might finance uh, the balance sheet that would include goodwill, that might include uh, patents or licenses or special permissions that a business has and that are not tied up in particular assets. When I say we're a niche market specialist, and that gives us advantage when it comes to those asset financing conversations, we would be a disadvantage uh, to the client when it comes to intangible asset financing. That's not our wheelhouse. And for this client, they had more intangible kinds of assets and, and value in the business, but it was not business that could be translated into debt secured only by assets. So in those cases, we would encourage them to go to one of those overarching lenders or maybe a combination of their conventional banks supported in this year by business credit availability uh, lending opportunities, or maybe there's some other kinds of short-term working capital financing, or if they're trying to grow, but they don't have cash flow, there could be solutions like purchase order financing. We have really good partners that specialize in those uh, solutions. And we would just refer the customer to those if it came became apparent that was a better choice for them. Going to the owner-manager business and the owner-operator business, which you said is a big part of your, your specialization earlier, uh, do you pull credit reports for those uh, owners, do you, like their personal credit reports? It depends. If a business is very is well established um, and the, the business has got adequate cash flow, 
it's quite often the case that we don't need any personal support from the business owners. Um, and ideally, that's where we like to get to. We like to do business with a business that can stand on its own two feet. In our world, we often see businesses where a business is growing and maybe they've kind of outstripped their, their investing for that growth future. Banks, um, because they're regulated entities, they have very strict rules governing their lending practices around future-looking, forward-looking kind of lending. And so we always say that those kinds of regulated entities lend looking in the rearview mirror. In other words, they lend based on what you have done before. They will take your forecasts into consideration, but they can't lend to you if the business you're already at, the stage you're at right now, can't support that new debt, which is a very sound business practice. We can do a little bit more agile work around that, that conceptually. If we have a really good understanding, you've got a contract uh, that is going to generate the cash flow, but this equipment is needed to, to service that contract, then we can do a combination of rear view mirror looking and forward looking decision making because we're just much more tactical. And we're not doing a bunch of unsecured lending the way a bank would do through an operating line or receivable financing, that kind of thing. So I think that uh, when we look at the overarching credit uh, process, we're looking at everything from their commercial credit reports that are sort of publicly available. There are some industry-specific reports that we pull that look at that business's patterns. There's their spending, borrowing, and payback patterns with all kinds of lending companies in the industry. So it's not just their trade payables that we're looking at. You know, if you buy fuel and you pay your fuel off every month, that's great. That doesn't tell me how you're going to service a long-term contract. So there are some companies in our industry that give us data uh, on different market silos or different uh, geographies I can look at to say, how does a particular company compare against other companies in that same sector, that same industry? That's more predictive for my kind of a business. And then I'm also looking at what security do I have in the form of the asset? Because in a worst case scenario, I'm hoping to get my money back by selling that productivity equipment. So that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to be a specialist in that. I can take a little bit more comfort in the nature of the security as my, my backup plan uh, than, than a lender who's doing a lot of unsecured kind of lending can. I know when a bank forecloses or exercises a right of sale or power of sale, sort of depending on the province, they take a bath on it always, right? It's never a good deal. For, for, I'm sure it's the same for you. You don't want to watch your clients fail. You don't want to be out selling a tractor or selling a valve or something like that, right? Is there essentially like a process for this? Or if you have a client who fails and you have to go that that ugly step, is it always just case by case? Um, it, it's a really good question. We're either really lucky or really good at what we do. I, and it's probably a combination of both like with everything. Some of it is just uh, right time, right place. We've been very, very fortunate over the years with our, our losses being extremely low. Some of that is because we do have very good relationships with clients. I'll share, for example, a client who built a big industrial services company uh, ended up getting into a partnership with a company um, 
a, a large company who is doing lots of acquisitions, but at the end of the day, they they weren't well financed. And the problems that they ended up having trickled down to their the companies they had acquired. And our customer, who was our customer before they went through this acquisition, we had been doing business with him. I remember walking around in his facility and him having an empty facility and saying, and this is where the plasma table is going to go. And that's where that, you know, the new cutting equipment's going to go. And here's where the finishing station's going to go. And, and painting his vision for us, his dream with myself and, uh, and his consultant in that space and later, he fulfilled all of that dream. And we were able to be a part of that journey for about 10 years. But when the business went sideways, we had such a good relationship with the client. He called us and said, I think I'm in, in some trouble here. And I'm going to help you sell your equipment. You've been really good to work with. We have a very good relationship. And uh, let's work together. And that's what we did. We were able to sell all but one piece of equipment. Yes, from time to time, it's part of the risk management business that we will take a loss. And it's part of the reason why we can't compare ourselves with a loan. When the bank does a loan with most businesses, they take a GSA over your company. That means they own everything that you own. The only thing I own is the asset that I'm financing. So I'm fundamentally taking more risk because I can't come back to your business to recover my debt through the G, through a GSA, whereas a bank will just keep working to collect the debt that's owed to them by uh, moving through all of the assets until they can liquidate everything that you own to recover their debt. I only have the security of the equipment that I have financed to recover. So I have to be really knowledgeable and make sure that I don't finance it for too long compared to its useful life or its market value. I have to be knowledgeable about what price that that asset actually drives. Um, an example for a client we were working with just this week, actually, purchasing a reasonably rare piece of equipment. We have valuation companies that we use. We got a valuation that said this asset is worth about $30,000 or $40,000 less than what the client had made an offer to pay for it. Uh, when we went back to them, the client went to the private seller and said, you know, we can't pay this price because we can't get it financed at that price. And so now they're renegotiating the price on the asset. Um, so some of our our prudence on purchasing the asset, because it is our last line of defense, what we do up front on a contract matters much more than what we do at the end. But yes, at the end, we will hope to work with the customer to work out the deal, which is 95% of the time what we're able to do, lean on the relationships and the good, good strategy we have in place. But worst case scenario, when the company goes sideways, we will get a bailiff, we'll get our equipment back. If we have to go to auction or work with our, our vendor uh, sources that we have across the country to resell equipment. Uh, we'll do that. A last resort is to have to lean on any guarantees that we might have had in place. Um, but we would rather be good uh, credit decision makers in front of getting a contract in place rather than be good at pursuing um, the outcomes. It's very important to get your money back. It's easy to lend money. 
But if you lend money badly and you don't get it back, you won't be in business for 20 years like we have been and uh, and be able to qualify for um, for the type of capital that we have access to. So it's a, it's not a fun thing to watch a, a company go sideways. Nobody wants that, least of all the business owner. And, and we try to go through it by, we have to protect ourselves. We are curators of somebody else's capital. At the end of the day, the institutional companies expect us to pay back our loans. Um, but we try to do it with uh, being resourceful and, and with the least amount of pain for everybody. So you mentioned the GSA in there, the General Security Agreement. Um, and you obviously engaged in this education process you've talked about. How aware do you think people are of the risks they're taking when they do uh, GSAs or personal guarantees or other restrictive covenants? I know one of the times we borrowed in uh, from you, Angela, we had to do a restrictive covenant where we weren't repaying shareholder loans for some period of time. So how much of that kind of stuff do you think people are really aware of the consequences of? I would say, unfortunately, most the average business person, um, take, for example, a client of ours that is in the welding business. They're a phenomenal welder. They've grown their grown their business. They do lots of industrial work. They're in high demand. Um, it's a, a very uh, lucrative business, profitable. They are so good at what they do. And I haven't got the slightest idea of how they do what they do. That's not my wheelhouse, but my wheelhouse is understanding the financial strings that are attached to deals that you make, including deals that I, I make. And we go through our contracts with our clients to explain why we're asking for things. Um, and we don't do any tied selling. So we never say you must acquire this if we're going to lend to you. We want you to make a decision that is prudent and reasonable for you. And we need to make a good credit uh, and asset purchasing decision up front in order to mediate any potential pain down the road. But I think most clients that I've spoken with do not understand. I'll give you another example because examples always tell the it's like a picture tells a, uh, is a thousand worth a thousand words. Uh, we had a client that wanted to do financing. Their credit was not great. They'd been through um, a partnership buyout, had spent a lot of cash paying out this partner who wanted to be out of the business, but the the business partner that decided to stay in the business um, depleted their cash resources significantly, and and then was struggling a little bit with cash flow in the business. So the credit rating was deteriorated because of that for in the business. And they were having a little bit of a hard time getting new credit and they needed a new piece of equipment in their shop. Um, they came to us and we said, well, part of our credit decision is looking at how you're making payments to other lenders. And it looks like it's a bit of a struggle right now. We can do the financing for you, but we need another piece of collateral. And the guy said, well, I own everything in this shop. And, and we said, well, actually, you don't own it. Probably your bank owns it. He said, no, no, my bank doesn't own it. I paid cash for all this and I own it outright. So we had to explain to him about the general security agreement and say he actually didn't have permission to just sell us a piece of collateral for a dollar in order to secure the financing on. And his bank would not do the loan for him, by the way. 
but he had to get permission of the bank. And it's a very common mechanism called a waiver that we would call the bank and say, this customer is a mutual client and they have offered to sell us this piece of equipment as security for some other debt. Sometimes the bank says, yes, it's fine. We understand why they're doing this and we can't lend to them right now. Uh, but we want them to be in a good position. And we understand this is an important part of the strategy. We often have banks refer clients to us for exactly that reason, because they have constraints that we can, we can be the parachute and be that tactical solution. However, I have come across times where the bank refused to waive their title through the general security agreement. The bank fundamentally owns everything that that business has everything that's on that balance sheet and anything that's uh, touched through a personal guarantee including a client's home their savings their rsps everything could be encumbered by that general security agreement and more often than not the clients are surprised to know that and i think it's because even if the banks explain it to them at the time that they're taking out the operating line think about it the client doesn't have a choice in order to access the bank capital, the loans, the operating facilities, whatever it is that they're trying to, to get access to, the bank says, here's the stack of papers you need to sign. It, it, there isn't a negotiation opportunity to say, well, I'll, I'll do this, but not that. And because the clients aren't familiar with financial terminology and, and what does it mean when you sign a general security agreement, what is it that you're letting happen to your business? Um, they don't understand at the beginning. So later on, the impact of it is not clear. That's a, another part of the education process we're often engaged in. And, and in our discovery, we encourage our business team to work with clients and ask these questions to figure out what the gaps are so that when the question comes and they say, well, I want to sell this piece of equipment to you on a sale leaseback, we say, okay, here's the process. We can handle all this, but you should know what's entailed or what we what we need to manage around. And we definitely can can work that um, process on your behalf. But just so you know what what is coming, um, business owners are good at what they do. It's it's impossible, even for somebody like me in financial services. There's lots of things I'm not good at in my own business, and I have people that are experts in that space inside of our business. And uh, that's why we think it's really important to have those conversations. I know you're in Edmonton, obviously, uh, but do you operate across Canada? We do. We have a business team, our head office and our processing team is all based right here in Alberta, but we do have clients right across the country. And some of them are one-time customers where we might've got referred. We've got uh, some significant national vendor partners that we work with that refer clients to us. We have U.S. Uh, funders who have customers that they want to serve in Canada, but they can't work in Canada. So we work with a bunch of U.S. vendors and funding organizations as their Canadian arm. And so it's kind of fun. Every jurisdiction is a little bit different, does business a little bit differently. It's always a learning curve, uh, but, uh, but it's fun. I, and I serve on the board of our National Industry Association. So I have colleagues across the country. If there were ever a place or a type of space we couldn't serve a client in, we certainly have very good referral options to go to. 
on that note of uh, serving on the board of your, your National Industry Association, I know you're quite involved in the community. I know this is a common thing for Edmonton business people. And can you just chat a little bit about how that has influenced your business? It's a core principle of mine. And I think everybody that is on our team feels the same way. We've got uh, everybody is involved in some kind of a charitable initiative. And, and these are not mandated by our organization. They're just the kind of people that uh, we like to work with that that care about their community. I think as a, a business person, I always say, you, you know, you're constantly in payback mode. Throughout my career, I have had phenomenal mentors, helpers, people who have assisted me, knowledge uh, providers. I've had colleagues that there were places in my business I just didn't know how to operate or how to problem solve. And they were very gracious to give me their time and their resources. And I would say that the the payback, the opportunity to pay back is being able to repay gifts that have been given to us over a long time. I also feel like serving your community, whether it's, you know, all of us as parents probably have served on school councils or done fundraising for the school. So starting with that to larger community initiatives, supporting, um, doing not-for-profit board work and being able to help others thrive in the community is just a way of saying that the health of the community inspires the health of our society. And I think, uh, so for example, right now I sit on the advisory council for the Thousand Women Initiative at Norquest. I sit on the Maji Entrepreneurship Center Advisory uh, Council. Both of those organizations are doing things through education, creating access, uh, removing barriers to education in the, in the case of the Norquest programs. And with the Maji Entrepreneurship Center, trying to teach people to build their own businesses, to think like an entrepreneur, to have that resilient, can-do, problem-solving kind of mentality. So whether they end up as an entrepreneur inside of a larger organization or an entrepreneur out in the community running their own business and creating jobs, those, you know, 80% of Canada's employees are employed by small and medium-sized businesses. Those small and medium-sized businesses are started by entrepreneurs. So it is the, literally the lifeblood of our GDP and the, the root, the heart of our employment sector. So anything that we can do that inspires the community, that that helps uh, people, that the vulnerable people to reach out and and build better lives those things make our communities better make job opportunities better create a robust society that helps fund things that are important to us like great education like great healthcare like in an innovative culture um edmonton is i don't know in, in my mind one of the best cities in the country to live in i mean think about the innovation culture that we're we see thriving around us right now it's phenomenal to be a part of it and the startup community, and we're seeing venture capital uh, start to come into the into our communities. But this requires people that are going to give back. They're going to give their time. They're going to give resources. And I just think, as a leader myself, um, paying back uh, gifts that have been given to me over the years, and making sure that my community is one that my team, uh, my employees, and their families can thrive in. That my children are going to want to stay in and contribute back to. 
those are all very, very core principles for me and something we'll uh, continue to keep digging into, see how much more we can do over time. Thanks so much, Angela. You've been a great guest today, shared a wealth of wisdom and experience. And I really appreciate you being so willing to share about your business. And as I mentioned earlier, you've been a great partner to Business Career College and lots of other businesses in Edmonton and across the country. Thanks so, so much, Angela. Thank you so much for inviting me today. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. Please join us again in two weeks' time. We're going to hear about cryptocurrency. I've got a, uh, a subject matter expert in cryptocurrency, a very knowledgeable, very in-depth interview here around what it is, how it works, and uh, to some extent, even what we do with it as an investment. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelo-Paquette, uh, Jilu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much. Thank you.